Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Thank you for everyone listening for making us Canada's number one real estate podcast. It's an honor and a privilege. And uh, today I'm joined here by my buddy, Nick. How's it going? What's up, Dan? I'm doing well. Excited to uh, be back for episode 149. Crazy. Those milestones, they always mean a little bit, right? 150, 200. I'm really excited. We're we're just about 900,000 downloads and and we will let everyone know when we hit a million because that'll be really cool. But uh, I'd like to start things off on a positive and, and slightly funny note today by reading a great review because we've got a lot to go over today, Dan, and we're covering your rare report, which is a kind of general economic real estate report that you put together for your brokerage. And there's a lot in there and not all of it is great news. So why don't we start things off with a, a good note here? Five stars. The title is number one podcast. And this is great. It's by moderate wealth, dad, poor dad. So I, I guess a close relative of rich dad, poor dad, <laughs> maybe he's working his way there, I guess. <laughs> the review goes on to say easily the most informative and relatable real estate investing podcast for Canadian real estate investors. Thank you both for your efforts and help. You are very welcome, Moderate Wealth Dad, and we hope you get to that rich dad status at some point. Worth noting that I I, I sent you a uh, not-so-positive review recently about asking too many questions while interviewing, and I have to say that is fully my fault. I acknowledge that. Thank you for the, the constructive criticism. However, in acknowledging that and making an effort to fix it, I would just ask you if you can change that review to a five-star review. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's it's funny because I I have noticed it, and it's not all the time. It's just funny. It's when we've got really interesting people on. Yeah, and if like, I get excited, man, I'm like, let me just ask you all the questions. Yeah, there's like one question, <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a second, let me compound three more, kind of like sneak oh, yeah, them in it's, there. It's a horrible habit, man. I get it's, too excited. It's funny. Yeah. Anyways, okay. So in today's episode, we've got a lot to chat about. As I said, we're going over Dan's report that he puts together for his brokerage. So we're touching on immigration, construction interest rates, house prices, and more. So Dan, let's dive in. Yeah. And if you want a uh, copy of this report, just email the show and we'll send you a copy. Actually, you know what? Let's just post a link in the show notes. There'll be a PDF copy in the show notes. I, it goes out on a, on a monthly basis. And I typically do like a read for this for all of the agents at my brokerage. Sometimes it makes it to YouTube. Sometimes it doesn't. But I think so if you want to see the charts, that might be the easiest place to, to do it. Um, but um, anyway, it's no secret that Canada's population growth is driving the supply and demand imbalance in Canada's market. And the Bank of Canada's most recent economic update pays close attention to that reality. Sustained population growth was thought to be the bull case for Canadian real estate. Now, this type of population growth is proving to either be too weak to prop up house prices or too riddled with consequences, which is kind of the theme that seems to be evolving in the media right now. But there's too many consequences to combat the new high rate environment for real estate. Yeah. And if you look at this chart that you've put in here, Dan, newcomers driving Canadian's population growth, you know, it's it's fair, it goes back to 1993 all the way to 2023. So it covers the last decade. And most of the lines seem to be pretty, pretty on point, right? Like there's not a major change in anything other than year over year population growth and then NPRs, which yeah. literally, 
you know, looks like the side of a mountain here. And we don't really even see that come into play. It looks like until about 2021, there's actually a dip and then a massive hockey stick line up to the right where we've obviously just all heard this there. The gates open, so to speak, right? Yeah. So the dip that you're describing is during the pandemic, The we saw a huge decrease in permanent residence applications. So like immigration, because people just weren't moving places. And also there was a big backlog because they just weren't processing. And then you also, you see in, during that period of time, uh, NPRs, net permanent residents, or sorry, non-permanent residents negative. So people were leaving and it's probably because again, like employment, like you see a lot of um, seasonal farm workers, temporary workers, et cetera. So business was contracting during that period. 2020 was like a write-off, right? Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of people or you saw a lot of people leaving. And then what happened after that was, and, and everybody knows this story, so I'm not going to belabor it too much, but in both immigration, so PRs, which is permanent residence applications and non-permanent residence applications skyrocketed. And the big X factor in the non-permanent residence is international students. And, mm-hmm. um, and interestingly, yeah. actually, this publication out of India just um, published an article saying that there's a 40% decrease in Indian international students wanting to come to or applying to come to Canada right now uh, in the second half why. of this year. Well, yeah, I feel like they're just feeling like it's kind of a ripoff, right? Like they're paying three times as much for a degree that doesn't actually even get them permanent residency status upon graduation because it's like they're at like a strip mall college, basically. And so I think finally the word is out, right? The word of mouth marketing is kind of creating this negative image for, and, and the, you know, the cost of living, housing crisis, et cetera. We know um, the immigration minister just increased the cost of living amount that they need to come here with. So people before, if you were an international student, you needed to have to show proof of funds for $10,000. And um, now it's 20, just over $20,000. So they've doubled it to mm-hmm. prove that you can afford to live here. Cause I think that a lot of people were showing up thinking, Oh, $10,000 is enough to afford to live in whatever the GTA. So I can go to my strip mall college and they and they they were having a very hard time doing it. So interesting to see how this whole thing is happening. And I, the last piece I'll leave before we move on to the next in regards to this population growth is non permanent residents being the 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 biggest composition of that growth. And hearing now that our largest the country that has the most international students or brings us the most international students is seeing a forty percent reduction in applications. It's worth revisiting, and you can go all the way back to episode number one, I guess episode number two on this show where we talk about what happened in the 1990s recession. And if you look at the 1990s recession, immigration ramped up. It can t- it stayed stronger. It didn't ramp up, but it stayed where it was. But non-permanent residence applications fell off of a cliff. And so expecting that population growth to sustain through a recessionary Canada and through a can- Canada that's in a, cr- in a state of crisis, I think would be a- an unreasonable expectation or unreasonable assumption to base your investment decisions off of. Yeah, for sure, Dan. I mean, I, I I couldn't agree more. It's it's such an unfortunate thing, you know. It's uh here's here's a I'm gonna try to come up with an analogy here, but you know, Canada's the party, and and everyone's talking about how how great it is, and people are you know getting Ubers from far away to come here and and all that kind of stuff, and then you show up and you realize you know there's there's no booze left. There's no, all the, you know, all the bowls of chips are are gone. There's nowhere to sit. You don't like the music that's playing. Your friends are gone or your friends are like, ah, it's not that good. Let's get out of here. You know, I feel like that's kind of happening right yeah. now because, you know, as I said, word of mouth marketing, no matter what business or, or anything, literally, literally anything, word of mouth is, is the most powerful thing. And, you know, we've let it get so bad here that, that the word of mouth going back home to India must just be like, yeah, 
this is this is kind of BS, you know, like, yeah. Anyways, let's not belabor it because we, we've talked about it a lot. But yeah, very unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it is it's, it's worth like, you know, it is worth talking a lot about and I, we are done, but like on that topic, but it is worth talking a lot about because most people would argue that immigration or population growth is the bull case for Canadian real estate. Heard that one before, I think. Yeah. And so, and, and I disagree and we'll use that to segue to the next one, which is because I think that house prices are measured in dollars, not people. And so the amount of capital that people has to to, to purchase those people moving here or the people who already live here matters. And so if banks aren't lending or if it's too expensive to borrow money, then all of a sudden you have a, a bit of a, a contraction. And so we've seen the record population growth and you saw this in other places, you know, there's even micro comps, Las Vegas is a great example. Las Vegas house prices fell while people were moving there for, you know, so interest rates matter. So let's talk about what's happening with rates right now. Cause it is, they're newsworthy. They're, they're worth paying attention to right now. They better be. <laughs> so the Canada five-year bond yield has retreated to levels not seen since the spring of this year when we saw Canada's strongest spring market. What a year it's been, eh? The that strongest is, spring market to start us off and then literally crickets here in the in the fall and, and kind of Q4 markets. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Then when I say strongest spring market, it was the uh, most price growth we've ever seen in a five-month period in Canada, by the way. So we saw the we saw the biggest drop in house prices in Canadian history last year in 2022, and we saw the strongest five-month growth in Canadian house prices. So when you're talking about volatility, it's just getting crazy. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, a little bit of that can be attributed to a bit of a bounce back, a bit of a rebound, but still, I mean, it was it just went crazy. Anyways, there's a bull trap. It's textbook yeah. bull, bull trap. I mean, I yeah. called it in January when it went and prices jumped up in January. I was like, this is a bull trap. <laughs> the five year fixed mortgage mortgage rates have been reduced accordingly with rates now available under the 5% mark. You're seeing stuff 499. Now, just for everyone listening, don't go start harassing your mortgage agent because those are kind of teaser rates to a certain extent. You've got to have very specific things to qualify for that specific loan to value, specific down payment. It's got to be under a specific price, et cetera. And so I think it's only insured or insurable mortgages right now. Yeah. so Which is hilarious. You know, it says something about Canada that the highest loan to value loans are the ones that you get the lowest rates on. Like, come on guys. <laughs> Shouldn't it be the other way? But your effective rate on that is way higher because you paid, you paid a 4% CMHC premium or if you're 95% loan to value. Exactly. So it may be just a quick refresher on that. You, you buy with an insured mortgage, you pay a CMHC premium or an insurance premium. It gets baked into the principal. So let's say you buy a house for a million bucks for reason. Ah, I can't really use a million because you can't buy a million. But even then you still can't because uh, yeah. it would be like 12 and a half or whatever. But you know, yeah, okay. So 500,000. Yeah, so, so 500K, you buy with 95% loan to value. So you only put 5% down, but you pay 4% of the purchase price. So I guess 20 grand in, in, a, in a fee that gets added to your price. You owe that uh, right away. So if you buy with 5% down, you're immediately, as soon as you take possession of the house, in a 1% equity position, technically a negative equity position because you got to pay somebody 5% typically or whatever. We went, we did, we just did an episode on commission. So yeah, two, two to 5% to sell that. So switching costs. So just, just worth being careful of that. If you're going to be buying with a high loan to value mortgage, understand the risks associated with it. But anyway, so, so maybe go, maybe go call your mortgage broker or agent to get that, to get them to explain that to you and bug them about that 499 and, and they can tell you why it's not going to work for you. 
Now, I think it is a couple of brokers, like a couple of the big brokers who have bought down a rate. I think like your HomeWise Butler, Six Mortgage Group, like guys who have the ability to do, they do such mm-hmm. massive volume that they managed to get it below that five. Um, but still, it's out there, right? And then to me, so the question becomes, is this going to give us as strong of a spring market as we saw earlier this year, right? Well, I mean, we'll we'll see. And just an FYI, if we we just did a full episode on on bonds and bond yields and how they affect mortgages and how they affect the economy as a whole. So if you want a refresher or or a bit of a deeper dive on bonds, go check that. It actually was just a few episodes ago, episode one forty one. Can you predict mortgage rates using bonds? So. Dan, I mean, time, back to your question, time will tell if this impact of reduced interest rates will be strong enough to outweigh the recessionary forces that we're going to be battling in uh, springtime here in this country. So, you know, there's also all these calls and predictions and all this chatter about, uh, you know, cutting anywhere from 20 to 50 bips and Q1 or Q2, or at least the first half of next year. So it'll be, you know, we thought 2023 was interesting. Buckle up 2024 is going to be a hell of a ride as well. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be like this for several years. Like it's just going to be caught. We'll constantly be talking about what's going on in the housing market and interest rates and inflation. Oh, I I mean, so. What else are we going to talk about on the show? No, it's such a good point. Right. And I was, I was thinking about this in like the psych, I was reading the psychology of money, rereading that book again recently by Morgan Housel. Great book, but you know, like I remember growing up and like my old man would always talk about inflation. Right. And and we never, like he says in this book, he's like, we, we're, we're a generation of people who have never experienced inflation in our adult lives. And so we didn't like, nobody ever really took it seriously. Right. And nobody really like cared about what the function of a central bank was and whatever. And now everybody, like all everyone ever talks about is that somebody told me the other day, they're like, you completely ruined Instagram, real estate Instagram. They told like they blamed me for it because they're like now everybody just does green screens of of like random interest rate crap. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I don't know. Anyway, my apologies. So my expectation, I try not to to get into the business of forecasting, but you know, certain certain things are kind of easy to forecast when they follow a pretty typical pattern. So I would expect that barring any major recessionary circumstances, which it seems like, you know, Canada just revised away a recessionary status by uh, revising Q2 GDP growth up. And um, unless we're in like a free fall recession or something like structurally breaks in like China or the US or the global economy, that that could break the ability to, to see a spring market. But I expect other otherwise we would see, so no black swans, we would see a, a spring market with seasonal growth, probably from five to 10% from January until May with a return to the slow declining market thereafter as a result of the recession that I believe we will be in. But I think, I don't think it's going to be a, a black swan kind of thing. I, I would hope, I just can't, like China's got probably the X factor there and the US, yeah. uh, com- US commercial real estate and the US regional banks, I think. But I don't necessarily think anything's, I don't think we're going to see like a global financial crisis. Uh, I think we'll see a long, painful recession, but I don't think we'll see like a big free fall. Like a like big crash. And yeah. 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 No, agreed. Yeah. So I think like you'll like expect every market in Canada, I'd say expect five to 10% growth in the spring and then probably a five to 10% drop from May till August. And then I think you probably stay on that, that trend line until, I don't know, somebody asked me to guess. I'm just going to do it right now. This isn't a prediction. This is a guess. I would say that you probably see the bottom in like the summer of, of 25, end of 25. Wow. Okay. So we've still got uh, about a year and a half of, 
of a runway to get through this, which to be honest, you know, if you're looking at it from a few different ways, uh, presents a pretty amazing opportunity for some people. And also is going to present some, some definite hardship for some people, which is, which is a good segue to, uh, to our next subtitle here, which is the worst is yet to come. And while this sounds quite ominous, um, it actually, again, if you look at it, it could be considered kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like if, if someone were to tell you, Hey, like, you know, you, are, you have a bad cold right now, but you'll be better in three days. Okay. Well, yeah. that, that, I'd almost rather that than, Hey, you have a bad cold and you know, good luck. It's going to be a rough couple days, hours, weeks, months, mm. whatever. Right. So Dan, you said or you like expect the Eglinton Crosstown. They just say we have no idea. I, you know what? I so I made a <laughs> I made a video about that. It, they got like almost a million views on on Instagram, and I compared it to Dubai creating like this palm tree islands and stuff like that. And I got another one in my back pocket. I'm I'm a little under the weather right now, so I, I plan on making it today. It, but uh... well, man, I just did more research on it. We're getting really off topic here, but I just did more research on it, and now apparently they're saying that the the actual tracks are the problem the tracks are misaligned and could call de- could cause derailments and they're just off by a few millimeters so I'm just like how does this stuff happen guys this is crazy Canada, man anyways uh dan you said that you expect december and january to mark the long-term low for the numbers of homes sold here in canada i completely agree i think we're already seeing that and talk to anybody in the industry you know, go listen to our last episode, how much do realtors actually make? The numbers are tough out there for a lot of people. So, you know, 2023 was the lowest November sales that we've seen since the 2008 global financial crisis when no one was really making moves, even though it was a lot more mild up here than it was in the States, it was still devastating enough to, you know, not allow anyone to go out and make transactions. October before that was the lowest since the 1990s. So, we're breaking records here, not the kind of records that you want to break. Yeah, I think um, it is worth noting that Canadians really do respond to economic uncertainty by pausing purchase decisions. But, you know, typically, and, and I have a chart in the report about this, but typically sales fall further after November. So December and January are always the lowest sales months of the year just due to holidays. Like it's tough to compete with Santa Claus. And so um, you're heading from historic lows of October and November into the lowest two seasonal months. So I would expect that it will take decades for us to ever see a lower number of home sales than December 2023 and January 2024, if we ever do again. That's good news, I guess. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's like, you know, you're saying, okay, look, this is going to be bad because real estate professionals who nobody really seems to care about are going to be suffering and have been suffering for uh, a long time. But and this is actually the longest we've ever spent below this. Uh, John Flynn posted this on on Twitter. I thought it was a great insight. Um, the longest we've ever spent below the ten year moving average for volume since that since Korea came out with that data point. Wow. Yeah, and so the real estate industry is certainly in recession, and people are really feeling it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mix in as you said, like we mix in that seasonality aspect. It makes a ton of sense, right? Like we see that every year, uh, you know, retail goes up usually, e-commerce goes up and, and other stuff goes goes down. But you add in the consumer sentiment and, and everything else. And yeah, you really have a, I mean, it, it is it is really bad out there. And for, you know, for the agents that are still crushing it or, or doing deals, good for you. And for the ones that aren't, you know, do whatever you can to to make it through this. You know, again, there's there's ways to differentiate yourself and to 
capture new niches and whatnot. And and if you can't do that and you still want to be a real estate agent or still want to be an investor or mortgage agent, then, you know, maybe, you know, multiple streams of income are always what I would recommend to everybody, recession or not, because in a recession, it goes to show that one stream of income, if that's all you're relying off of, and that's taken away from you or drastically affected, things change in your life. Dan, let's keep the let's keep the show going here. Next heading here, population growth doesn't help construction. That sounds a bit backwards, but uh, explain that to me, please. Yeah, so it is interesting. This came from a bank of, from Bank of Canada calculations. It was posted by a couple of folks on Twitter. Um, Table Salt is a great uh, great follow on Twitter, and I think he posted it, but somebody else posted it before, I believe. But um, this comes from Statistics Canada and Bank of Canada calculations, and it shows immigrants comprising a small share of employment and construction. So while the federal government, especially immigration minister, argues that we need population growth to strengthen the labor force and combat the housing crisis, because they literally said that, Bank of Canada research indicates immigrants are least likely to work in the construction industry. So sorry, let me rephrase that last sentence. The the sector that they are least likely to work in out of all of the sectors is construction. Right. And I mean, just for for some, because we're looking at this chart and I know everyone listening isn't. So transportation and warehousing makes up the first finance and insurance makes up the second professional, scientific and technical that that sector makes up the third. And then we've got all these other ones all the way down till literally the last one, the lowest share of permanent or non-permanent residents working in this sector is construction. It, it's it's kind of shocking that, that uh, there wouldn't be a bit more thought put into this from our higher ups in, in the government here, right? It's like you basically said we need skilled labor to combat the housing crisis, but yet we've got more finance and insurance people coming in by a matter of over 10% almost by the looks of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's not not a good data point. That's for sure, especially for for the the government who I mean, you're just like it, I feel like it's day after day. You just see more and more headlines about this. And it's crazy because like, you know, I, I feel like nobody was talking about immigration. And it was like kind of or like population growth, non-permanent residents, et cetera, until and, and I think rightly so, like until the, the actual victims of the system were the immigrants themselves and the, and the non-permanent residents themselves. And now we've got this really, really messed up situation. Um, and, and it seems like it's all everyone's talking about in regards to, and, and it's being, you know, it's, it's the finger that's being pointed at the housing crisis, but it's also the finger that's being pointed at the government for kind of creating this problem and, and creating an unwelcoming, like, like, like that party you described, right? Like this unwelcoming environment <laughs> for like just setting people up for failure, right? It's yeah. tough, tough situation. And, and I think you can't, you can't understate the long-term consequences of, of messing that up, right? Like if that's the perception that an entire generation of, of prospective residents has about our economy, even if we fix that problem in, in the next five to 10 years. Too little, too late. Damn yeah. Done, so right? so you, it really makes you wonder. And man, I, I hate to say like that we have that kind of like I told you so thing, but like <laughs> you and I were talking about this a year ago and it's like- Easily over a year are ago. We, yeah. Are we at risk of making making the move to Canada less compelling? And and I and I always felt like yeah like I think they're they're just going to keep overdoing it keep pushing the limits until we people are like oh like we're, we don't want to go there anymore and I think we're yeah. kind of getting there it's it's uh it's fascinating it's, it's really a, really interesting you know, it's a, it's a sad scary thing because whether 
you know, and, and not even just like, not even people that have just gotten here, but let's say people that have been here for, for several years from any country in the world, I've had more, and or even, you know, people that have been born and raised here, second generation, I've had more conversations in the last six to eight months about people that want to leave Canada than, than I think I've ever had before in my life. Like, like, ever. yeah, it is interesting though. Cause I feel like you, you know, and, and during COVID it was kind of like people just wanted to leave Toronto yeah, and, and a lot did. And so I guess the question becomes, does it materialize in people actually leaving Canada um, or does it materialize in what we've kind of presented as our, our sort of bull case in, in for a lot of like secondary cities? Like, I really do think like yeah. you look at the US, right? Like, and a lot of it's because of sports, I think, because like, you know, every city's name because they have a sports team. Like, we need a, more sports. All, yeah. I mean, basketball it is a great, teams, well, it is a great teams. way to unite a country, right? But, you know, you have so many, so many cities that all have like their own unique identity and people want to live there and they're all, they, you know what I mean? And Canada's, I don't think we're, I don't think we've, we've had that. And I'm not just saying that as somebody like who, you know, is a Tony Toronto, cause I, I'm not really like I'm, I, I grew up in, <laughs> in the sticks outside of Toronto. Right. And you're from Vancouver, but like, I, I think that we're just getting to that kind of Renaissance period where like all of these Canadian cities really do start playing their own role and, you know, growing on their own. And I think that because we have so much population growth and it can't all land, it can't all afford to stay in Toronto and Vancouver. It's going to go to some of these other places. And those places are really, really, really where the opportunities are from my perspective. And you're seeing it in Halifax, you're seeing it in, in Calgary, Edmonton, right? Like a lot of these other cities, they're just, they're not on that roller coaster that Toronto has been on. If you look at the house prices and volatility and um, crisis stuff happening. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And, and hey, great, great segue. It's almost like this report was designed to have a bit of a flow to it. <laughs> um You'd be surprised, honestly. <laughs> Let's talk about kind of exactly what we were just saying. Demographics are demanding, demographics demand excess. So one of the primary driving forces behind Canada's need for temporary foreign work is the number of job vacancies here in Canada, which hit a record high in 2022. Now, since then, the number has retreated as hiring slows alongside business growth and as the economy contracts. So demographic demand has since outpaced housing starts at a record pace, according to the Bank of Canada's most recent report. Again, I will describe this chart to you because you're probably walking or driving or working out or cleaning your room or whatever everyone does as they listen to this podcast. So you've got a chart here that has a red line for housing starts and a blue line for demographic demand and the demographic demand the housing starts at about 250 and the demographic demand is at 550. So a massive disparity between those two. And that's in the hundreds of thousands. And they were trading, they were, they were, they, they pretty much were like in tandem for most ba- of Basically from 2015 to, so- to 2022, there was a bit of a, there was a, a peak in a valley seen but kind of between 2019 and 2022, but we really let it go this year. <laughs> I think yeah. a lot of that, I do really think a lot of that is like just, um, and I think, I think like the numbers really look wild right now because I think we're getting a lot of the backlogs from, from COVID, like the lack of processing during COVID. So I think, you know, I, I don't, I think that the, it's really easy to look at the population growth numbers and say the, uh, your 2023 figures, like that's the peak of population growth for Canada mm-hmm. ever. Like, I don't think you'll ever see a bigger number. And so, you know, uh, adjust your bearings accordingly, it, it, especially if you, you know you're counting on that number continuing to grow go go up as your bull case. Let's jump over to inflation here as a headwind 
for the, for the real estate market, right? Because excess demand, the excess demand that you just described hasn't really showed up in house prices, right? We talked about that earlier in the episode, how I mentioned, you know, house prices are measured in, in dollars and not people, and they're not going up in dollars. And so, you know, the interesting part is where is that all that excess demand showing up? Well, it seems like it's showing up in, in rent. And as a result, yeah. Canadian rent inflation continues its uptrend as a result of the excess demand. Now, with that being said, this is probably stale data because, yeah, see, the last observation from the Bank of Canada is October 2023. And like literally October 2023 is when rent stopped going up um, because I think the market was just like, we're done here. Like when everyone's like tapped <laughs> out, right? So if you go to Door Insight and look at their their rent charts, doorinsight.com, great site, by the way, Nick and I use it a lot, friends of the show. And uh, yeah, you can just see how that's, and that translates to inflation. So why don't you just jump over to how shelter is, is driving inflation? Yeah. So before we do that, let's just remember that inflation is a rise in prices, which can be translated as the decline of purchasing power over time as well, right? And again, reminder, the target inflation rate here in Canada, and I believe globally, is between 2 and 3%. Now, the annual inflation rate in Canada fell to 3.1% in October of 2023 from 3.8% in the previous month. That was slightly below market expectations of 32 the result was softer than the Bank of Canada's forecast that inflation is likely to remain close to 3.5% all the way through the middle of next year. Strengthening the market best at the central bank is probably done with rate hikes, which I'm sure is a welcome sentence for just about everybody out there. So Dan, tell me about kind of rental inflation and mortgage costs and really what they're doing, how they're contributing to inflation overall, because it's it's wild. I know we've talked about this on the show before, but this is always a, a stat that can be talked about as many times because it, uh, it blows my mind every time. Yeah. So as a result of rental inflation and mortgage interest costs, shelter is the leading cost of inflation in, in both components. So sorry, leading cause of inflation in, in, in both components. So mortgage interest costs uh, are at 30.6% wow. of, of your total inflation composition. So a third of inflation comes from, from mortgage entries. And then rental accounts for uh, 8% of it. And so this is, I mean, it's funny because you look at that and you're like, ah, you know, if, if I'm a central bank, it's like the perfect setup, right? It's like, oh, well, I just have to reduce rates and then inflation's back down in the neutral range, but it doesn't really work like that, right? It's not that easy. I wish it was that simple. Yeah. And on this year over year price change chart, it it's crazy. I mean, we've got mortgage interest costs at 30%, which is literally the the next the second place <laughs> is rent accommodation at eight percent. So you see, there's you know over twenty. 2% just just in that, you know, disparity just in that alone and then, you know, the next one is alcohol and non-alcoholic beverages 7.1%, food purchased from restaurant 5.7%, meat 4.4%. So, you know, it just goes to show what a massive massive impact that mortgage and mortgage interest costs and rent have on inflation rate here. It's crazy. Anything else to add to that, Dan? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, I got, I got my next question here for you. And we've chatted about this a little bit. Is business back? I mean, we know, I know we saw, you know, 
horrible things happened to small and medium businesses over the last few years. But I feel like there's a lot of innovation here in Canada. And we, we, you know, we, we have a prop tech episode coming up soon. And I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of really cool startups strictly within the, the real estate mortgage and construction space alone. But it's hard to start and grow a business here, man. I mean, you and I know that probably better than most as we've started growing many businesses. It's not easy here. So is business back in Canada or what? I mean, it's, it's interesting. This chart comes from um, PH Floor on Twitter, which is an, a non-account, actually. It probably makes some of the best charts on Twitter. But uh, it says the number of businesses with one or more hired employees has returned to the long-term trend line after the pandemic dip. It, it is interesting from my perspective because, you know, I, I think like one of the big reasons we didn't see a ton of business growth in Canada is because like why, and Mark Morris has an amazing um, Twitter thread about this. It's like, why would you as a as a business person, like really invest all your money in your business if you can just put it in a house and it'll make you more money, right? Like, and that's that's the challenge for the Canadian economy when your house and when your economy is so ex- exposed to uh, real estate and housing, it doesn't necessarily incentivize people to grow businesses. And so, anyway, at the same time, it's a great quote from uh, Mikhail Scooterland on um, from the Canadian Labor Economics Forum on Twitter, and he says labor productivity gains flatness in recent months. And it's consistent with a sluggish business investment and declining capital labor ratios. And so even though the number of businesses uh, with one or more hired employees is growing, the productivity gains and declining capital labor ratios are potentially why. So on a per business basis, we're not getting more productive. We're just seeing more businesses. So interesting way of looking at at both. Uh, Let's jump over to um, everybody's favorite thing here in Canada, which is debt service. Ah, uh, yes. Now we chat about this all the time on the pod debt servicing. It's so important from an investment standpoint. And if you've listened to, I'd say almost any other episode, this, but where we're talking strictly about investing or investing principles or investing metrics, debt servicing, debt service coverage ratio always comes up. But it matters outside of investing as well. It matters in basically any situation that an individual or a company or a corporation has debt. The question always is, can that debt be serviced properly? Yeah, it's interesting. Like we we talk about it in the context of debt service coverage ratio, right? Which is really what determines whether or not a bank will lend you money to buy the investment property that you want. Like when I say the bank is realistically at the end of the day the one who determines whether or not you're buying an investment, that's the metric that is determining it. So get good at calculating it. Debt service coverage ratio is literally just your NOI, net operating income, divided by your annual debt service. So whatever your income is for the year, divided by the cost of paying your mortgage for the year. Usually, I mean, I think CMHC is at a 1.1, 1.2 on MLI select yeah. stuff. Yeah, I think it's 1.1 in some cases uh, on like the on the 100, 100 point stuff. So they want to see 10% cash positive. I would say a lot of other lenders are even higher than that. Like you're kind of bees are looking for 1.2, 1.3. And anyway, beyond investment, Canadian debt service levels are back to levels not seen since the pre-pandemic and the global financial crisis. During the pandemic, Canadians had a lot less to spend money on. If you remember this, 2020, you know, couldn't go out, couldn't buy stuff, you know, couldn't shop, couldn't, there's nothing to do. And we were getting stimmy checks, you know, CERB, whatever, and maybe mortgage deferrals. And so people were just piling up savings. Um, household savings rates rose, but they have since retreated. And so 
Canadians are spending now a lot more money on debt service, paying their mortgages. And as a result, this money will be taken away from economic growth. And that debt service coverage ratio, like we mentioned, is, a me- is, is just a nice measure that banks would use um, of the cash flow available to pay current debt obligations. So GDS and TDS for individuals, which is your underwriting if you're just buying a house for yourself, not as an investment. DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, if you're buying it as an investment. Yeah, great stuff. Then I don't have anything to add to that. We've we've done a hell of a lot of content on DSCR. So if you want more, go 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 listen to all the episodes and get a refresher. Speaking of refreshers, we just did another episode on this. Episode one forty two are the Airbnb days over. So go check that out. We took an in depth look at what's happening in the STR, that short term rental market. So the next heading that we're gonna just quickly go over here is the Airbnb effect. So Desjardins research quantified the impact of Airbnbs in the Canadian housing market. They estimate that short-term rentals accounted for a 1.4% of total housing stock and nearly 5% of long-term rental stock with Toronto having the highest number of listings. Desjardins speculates that Canada proposed changes to Airbnb tax structure could quickly increase the housing stock. Dan, walk me through this chart we've got here. Yeah. So basically you've got the, so the the chart heading says limiting short-term rental listings could quickly increase the housing stock. And it shows a percentage of the, sorry, the the thousands of listings per city on Airbnb and Verbo. So Toronto has like uh, almost 20,000, Montreal about 6,000, Vancouver about 5,000, Calgary about 5,000, Edmonton about 2,500. Well, basically Edmonton, Halifax, Ottawa, Mississauga, Surrey, Quebec City, Winnipeg, and Victoria, all kind of 2,500 listings or below. And then it also shows a bar that shows uh, what percentage of them are the entire home. So the lowest percentage of entire home would be uh, Mississauga. So probably the more you know, B&B style, renting a room, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and the highest is Quebec City, which makes sense, a very tourist uh, economy. So maybe you know, group, big groups of people wanting to stay in a house. Victoria is up there as well at over 80% are um, entire homes. And Montreal as well, actually, is over 80%. So anyway, yeah, so they 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 feel that, again, if, poli- if, if uh, the current policies that we discussed and I think we we did another episode recently where we touched on um, the triggering of the um, HST uh, self-assessment for Airbnbs. Like if, if those mm-hmm. things start to happen, it, it could really uh, have a meaningful impact on supply. And I don't know if I necessarily felt felt that way until I saw this report where they show there's like 350,000 Airbnb units across the country. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I feel like um, these SDR companies almost like acknowledge this too. Like, you know, we've had them as advertisers on the show and they, they, the, you can hear in the ads, they're typically uh, aimed at like, you know, just telling people like, oh, you might have an extra room in your house uh, to, to rent out to somebody. Right. I think that it goes more towards that B&B like hospitality than, um, you know, whatever the, the kind of like passive income or like whole house stuff seems to be what policymakers are going after. So interesting anyway. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, I think we're, we're kind of getting to the, the latter part of the show here. Let's, let's kind of hone in on um, downtown Canada here, Dan. Let's look at the GTA real estate market. So hit me with some stats from uh, the month of November. Yeah. So um, this is cool, actually. Like, so Alex uh, Exelon um, on Twitter, he, uh, he does this report, like this part of the report for me. Um, Cause he's, he's, just frankly, better at micro analysis than I am. Um, so I'm really happy to be able to work alongside him on on this part of the report. But he, um, it shows basically, and this is what I alluded to in under the heading, the worst is yet to come that you mentioned earlier. But 
the, you know, the GTA real estate market r- remained in a slump in November. Monthly sales reached numbers not seen since 2008, a year in which November saw just 3,600 properties sell on the Toronto Real Estate Board. And this year we wow. saw, yeah, 4,200 sell in November, 16% more than 2008. Um, and while this gap seems significant, in 2008, the population was 5.3 million and the area's population is up 20% in the same period of time, currently at 6.3 million. And so wow. when you count, yeah, so when you account for population growth, the per capita sales is technically worse than one of the lowest months of sales volume experienced during the 2008 recession. Yeah. And we can see that illustrated in this in this great chart that he's put together. By the way, I don't know if we've mentioned this. If you want this report, just email the show. We'll, we'll send you a copy so you can see all of the, the great charts that, uh, that Dan and Alex have put together. Let's talk about supply. So supply seems to be easing. Well, the market has been pretty oversupplied in the last little while. Both new listings and active listings started their typical seasonal downtrend, which you read already mentioned briefly, it wasn't enough to move the market balance back towards a seller's market territory. And so the market remains in a buyer's market headed into the slowest months of the year. Given the new listings and active inventory, both also see their lowest levels in December and January, we'll likely need to wait until the spring market to determine whether or not we'll see 2024 fall into a buyer's market or into a seller's market territory. So again, don't you guys worry. We'll be following this closely and uh, keep everyone in the loop. Dan, let's quickly chat here about uh, new construction. Sales are low. Prices continue to decline. And can you comment on these on these two charts we have we have here briefly? Yeah. So new construction sales, and, and this is interesting because um, you know we're seeing a. A big increase in purpose-built rental demand. Uh, sorry, purpose-built rental construction, um, like huge. I think, like you know, the most we've seen in, in a really long time. And so, I think a lot of this excess demand is being backfilled by purpose-built rental construction, which we've talked a lot about on the show. And, and honestly, I would say rightly predicted that that would take place. But that the challenge is that in in certain markets, like in downtown Toronto, and in, in the more core you are, basically, the more expensive your land is the less the economics of building purpose-built rental works. And so most of those more urban projects need to see end unit sales, so condo sales, to make the projects viable. And unfortunately, new construction sales were 53% below the seven-year average with year-to-day sales historically down 46%. It's like 18,000 units were pre-sold in the last 12 months, which is 49% below the historical average Basically, if you analyze the historical that. average, that's wild. Yeah. And so this would basically tell you that, you know, a unit sold today is a unit built in four to five years. So you, you could see a, a gap forming in the supply pipeline in four to five years. So it's like, okay, well, everyone's saying we're underbuilding. We're not necessarily currently. We do housing starts are doing okay. Um, but we're, we're, but we're not building as much as we should be for the population growth. But in five years, in the markets where you're not seeing purpose-built rental, there could be a huge gap in supply that needs to be accounted for by either multiplexing existing dwellings, which we talked a lot about as a way to backfill a lot of that policy. And it seems like the feds are getting more and more serious about making that happen. We're going to do a whole episode on the sweeping changes that we just saw in BC with an absolute legend, by the way, from BC. We're great, grateful to have on the show. We might have done an event with him recently, <laughs> but find where that gap is because it's either you're either going to backfill it with that, or prices are going to go up, 
in in that area, right? Uh, eventually, right? And this is it kind of in line with what I said at the beginning here. And I, I still hold my thesis that I think our price trajectory will look almost exactly like the 90s. So we saw like a 20% drop. We saw like a 10% bull trap. We've now seen a 10% drop. All those gains have been given back. And then you kind of see a slow, long grind down. And that's the phase that we're in. And let's say let's say I'm right and that takes until 2025 to take place to, to kind of reach that bottom. You know, in, in the 90s, the bottom was like a year long. It was just flat for a year, right? The market can do that. It can trade. Like it doesn't have to. It's not binary. It doesn't have to go down or up. It can go sideways for a long time. Yeah. And then, you know, then you would get on the recovery. And let's say the 90s, 90, the recovery in the 90s took like four to five years to get back to that nominal peak. Uh, it, it was twelve year, a twelve year peak to trough back to that peak on the nominal. That's before adjusting for inflation. I think I honestly think it's going to be the exact same setup. I can't see and and so think about that. And then think about okay, twenty four, twenty five is maybe your bottom. You get a good property at that point, and then if you buy in one of those more supply impacted areas where that one of these supply gaps could appear, and this will vary on a municipal basis. So I can't even really tell you. Like it's going to be. You know, certain cities, certain pockets of certain cities where it's like, yeah, nobody was buying condos because nobody was, or nobody was building condos in that area, but it's the hottest area, right? What is that area in, in your city? In, in, you know, what are the hottest pockets, the hot pockets in Canada? Cause they exist. So there's a, there's a, there's a geographic, uh, investment thesis to be a, a neighborhood level geographic investment thesis to be found based on just that chart alone from my perspective. So, yeah. Love that, Dan. Um, hot pockets, you got me. You got me all hungry now. I'm more of a pizza pop guy myself. But, <laughs> anyways, guys, let's wrap it there. There's there's a whole bunch more information in this report. If you want a copy of it, reach out and we will send you that copy. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you got a ton of value out of today, and we'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.